So let me just say, it's really nice to be back here again. Some of you may have seen me on video a couple of times, and it's really good to be here in person. So an hour and a half northeast of here, outside Taos, there's a 50-mile canyon, the Rio Grande Gorge. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Named for the river that runs through it, the gorge is part of the longer tectonic Rio Grande rift that bisects our state. And a bridge spans the gorge near Taos. It can be crossed either by car or on foot. It's called, no surprise, the Rio Grande Gorge Bridge. Well, it turns out that this bridge is the fifth tallest span in the United States, and it's the second highest in the nation of any bridge passing over a state highway. Years before I moved to New Mexico in 2012, I took a writing workshop in Taos. It was in the mid-90s. During our afternoon free time, another participant named Emily asked me if I'd like to go on a drive to see the gorge. I didn't know anything about the gorge, but I was always game to explore. So I didn't give it a second thought. Sure, why not, I replied. After a short drive, we arrived at the gorge and parked our car in a small lot near the bridge abutment. From this vantage point, there really wasn't very much to see. We saw a great brown expanse of land and a pair of concrete railings framing the highway, but not much else. So I thought to myself, this is the gorge. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Nonchalantly, I started across. Then I looked down. Without warning, my whole world changed. What had been solid ground under my feet became nothing. Suddenly, we were suspended in midair. Below us was a gaping chasm. The river, the Rio, 650 feet below, was barely visible. The only thing separating us from a long drop was that, the, was that bridge and its rather skimpy-looking railing. So, no big deal, turned suddenly into, oh my god. From within me rose up a bubble of pure terror. It felt as though a flock of birds were taking off inside my chest. They escaped, along with a gasp. Meanwhile, to quote writer Margaret Halsey, my knees could have been stirred with a spoon. Faced with this, what was I going to do? I instinctively knew I couldn't magically erase what I was feeling. Fear of heights runs in my family. You wouldn't have gotten my dad or my middle sister anywhere near the Rio Grande Gorge, let alone the bridge. They also spent their lives avoiding small aircraft, Ferris wheels, and the top deck of Yankee Stadium. I have a milder case of this acrophobia, but it is real nonetheless. 
So should I turn back and wait in the car? That was certainly an option. If I did turn back, nothing would be lost beyond a bit of pride. Emily wouldn't mind if I sidelined myself. The decision what to do was entirely up to me. But some part of me resisted the urge to turn back. Maybe it was pure ego, or maybe it was my wiser self, who somehow knew that crossing the bridge would teach me something. Whichever, I knew somehow that I had to move forward. And so I did. I tried walking slowly. I tried walking fast. I tried meditation. I tried deep breathing. I tried walking on the road to gain distance from the edge. I tried looking off in the distance rather than down into the chasm. I tried thinking about all the people and the cars who had made this crossing safely. And since I'm an earthquake survivor, I tried not to think about the seismic activity around the rift. Well, did any of these tactics expunge my fear? No, not really. It was with me all the way across and all the way back. What kept me going was simply this, the slow, steady pace of putting one foot in front of the other. Was it courage I found on the Rio Grande Gorge Bridge that day? Well, maybe, but maybe not. If it was courage, it certainly was of a minor kind. It's nothing compared to what we see in other parts of the world, most notably the heroic ongoing struggle of Ukraine right now against the Russian invasion. But we all have to start somewhere. And what's right in front of us is as good a place as any. Well, this memory is 25 years old, and yet it continues to be useful in my life. I call it up when I'm feeling challenged, when fear gets in the way. And perhaps you have similar stories, memories that can function like a little smooth stone you can carry in your pocket, a smooth stone that can remind you of times when you've been afraid, but when you have overcome fear, when you have done something that's hard for you. And in that reminder, maybe you can find the courage to do other hard things. I'm not very brave is a common self-deprecating assessment. I often refer to myself as a wimp. But perhaps we only think that because we subscribe to some misconceptions about courage. As I think about this, it occurs to me that there are two misconceptions about courage, at least two. First, there's the idea that being Courageous means being fearless, having no fear. But many brave people will tell you 
That's really not the case, at least not always. There are concert pianists whose knees shake before every performance. There are trial lawyers who can't sleep the night before they go to court. A skilled community organizer once told me that he had never stopped being anxious before an action that he was leading. And biographies of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tell us that he wrestled with fear his whole life. The difference between those folk and the rest of us may have nothing to do with whether they are fearful or not, whether they live with fear, and rather have everything to do with how they manage it. Mark Twain once wrote, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. More recently, Nelson Mandela said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. So can we take small steps, learn to resist fear, maybe master it, maybe even triumph over it, at least temporarily? Maybe so. But for some of us, a first step on the path of courage might be even more basic than that. A good start may simply be to acknowledge our fears, to accept that we have them. By doing this, we might unlock mental energy that would otherwise be bound up with beating ourselves up for being fearful, energy that we can then put toward more constructive uses. Marilyn Ferguson once suggested that we might even welcome our fears. Properly understood, he, she says, they're some of our best teachers, a treasure house of self-knowledge. Knowing ourselves better can point to paths beyond fear or help us act in spite of them. And of course, it's helpful to remember that there are things we should be afraid of or at least cautious about. People who fly airplanes have a saying, there are old pilots, there are bold pilots, and there are no old, bold pilots. It's worth remembering, courage is different from bravado. Bravado is all about faking courage or ignoring our fear. A second misconception equates courage solely with outward acts, heroic rescues, spectacular feats of political prowess. But courage is also found in quiet daily acts of resolve. And it likely involves eternal struggle, inter internal struggle rather than external. I stumbled on an Emily Dickinson poem recently that expresses that idea. Here are her first two stanzas. To fight aloud is very brave, but gallanter I know who charge within the bosom the Calvary of woe, who win and nations do not see, who fall and none observe, 
whose dying eyes no country regards with patriot love. Dickinson, of course, stayed within her house most of her adult life, so she knew what she was talking about. And Dickinson's words remind me of an admonition that I'm sure you've heard too. Be kind, for everyone we meet is fighting a hard battle. When we encounter a stranger or a friend, we have no idea what courage it might have taken them simply to get up, get out of bed in the morning. And that reminds me of something else, words of Brian Andreas, an artist. Anyone can slay a dragon, but try waking up every morning and loving the world all over again. That's what makes a real hero. Try waking up every morning and loving the world all over again. That's the kind of courage everyone can practice. And for many of us, it does take practice. And it's worth noting in connection with loving the world that the word courage comes from the same linguistic root as the word for heart. So what are some of the ways we can love the world? I think they are probably countless. A young school student loves the world when they go and join a child who's sitting alone in the school cafeteria. A person of any age loves the world when they kindly but firmly challenge a racist remark or a transphobic one and call the speaker to the better angels of human nature. You love the world if you don't get out much anymore, but you write letters to people whom you think need a little encouragement, or you write postcards for Vote Forward, or You, You, The Vote, or an environmental organization urging, encouraging people to make their voice heard at the polls. You love the world the morning after your spouse or partner has died, and you have no idea how you can possibly endure another day. Yet you get out of bed. You do the tasks that need doing. This quiet, ordinary courage does take practice. But every day we can nudge the boundaries of our comfort zone just a little bit and do a thing that feels hard or risky or unfamiliar. We can push ourselves into a place that leaves us feeling awkward or incompetent or vulnerable. And doing, in doing that, we might help somebody else and help ourselves as well. I think of the volunteer work I'm, I've just started doing at a place called The Landing in Albuquerque. This is a local Episcopal church's ministry with asylum seekers. These are people who have just been released from detention and need a temporary place to stay. At the landing, they receive a warm welcome, maybe the first one they've received since coming to this country. They get a good meal and a bed for a night or two. In other words, 
they get a place to catch their breath before traveling to meet their sponsors. It feels good to make a difference in this way, to offer this very small but strategically important assistance to people who've had a tough time of it. And the guests are very appreciative. At the same time, when I volunteer at the landing, I know that I'm doing something I usually try to avoid. That is, I step into a situation where I feel awkward and incompetent, feelings that I absolutely hate in myself. They're so uncomfortable. And the discomfort is not about meeting new people, I love that, but about trying to navigate language differences. I thought I was reasonably competent in Spanish, but last week for the first time I really discovered its limits. And yet I know with practice that I will learn to live with that discomfort. My Spanish might even get a little better as I learn. And this is clearly small stuff, hardly noble or valiant. But I think practicing this small, ordinary courage can build us up for bigger things. It might even help fortify us for the times we live in, a future in which the survival of democracy is uncertain, not to mention the future of our beloved planet. Historian Timothy Snyder has a little book. It really is small. You can almost put it in your pocket. It's called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And it lists a series of acts of quiet resistance that we can engage in to keep democracy alive in our times and in possible harder times to come. His first one is, do not obey authoritarians in advance. And they end with, be as courageous as you can. In between, Snyder says, the minor choices we make are, in their way, a kind of vote. In the politics of every day, our words and gestures, or their absence, count very much. Practicing ordinary courage now can prepare us for the future when we may be called to acts of extraordinary courage. May we be ready. And remember, we don't have to face it alone if it comes. And we may discover that we are braver than we think we are. So may it be. And now let's join in a time of silence. 